Listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Luke chapter 15, we of course remember that Jesus has just left the scene in chapter 14 where he went to the meal at the house of a Pharisee. Uh, and was surrounded by many lawyers and Pharisees who, of course, were very legalistic. Jesus corrected them for so many of the thoughts in their minds. He taught them that the invitation of the gospel would go out to people in the highways and in the byways beyond uh, what they would commonly imagine. Now, one of the things that always got Jesus in trouble with these folks is his attitude concerning the tax collectors and the sinners. He didn't, of course, approve of their lifestyles, but he loved them. He gave them hope, hope that there was a chance for them with the living God. And so Jesus here in Luke chapter 15 still is going to uh, speak to the Pharisees uh, and to the scribes uh, about his relationship with those who are lost. And Jesus is going to do this in the form of three specific parables. But let's read the setting of these parables. Uh, First of all, in verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors, it says, and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This was their major complaint with Jesus, that he received sinners. They felt that this was a relaxed attitude concerning sin. Uh, But Jesus was drawing these people to himself so that he might give them the truth of God's word and show them that there really was hope for them that God so loved the world. Now, the interesting thing is that Luke describes or introduces these three parables by saying at the beginning of verse 3, or really the entirety of verse 3, so he told them, that is the tax collectors and the Pharisees, he told them this parable. In other words, and the thing that I'm trying to highlight there is that Luke makes it sound as if it's one parable singularly, that Really, you have three movements of the same theme. Now, of course, the three parables, if we speak of them in the plural that we know of here in Luke chapter 15, is that Jesus is going to talk about a a shepherd who lost one of his 100 sheep and went to find it. And then a woman who lost one of her 10 coins and went to find it. And then a father who lost one of his two sons and went and didn't really go to find him, but rejoiced when his son uh, returned. And some have pointed out that perhaps what you have here is the totality of the attitude of the entire triune Godhead concerning the return of man to himself. You have the son in the shepherd going out and seeking the lost sheep. You have perhaps the spirit or the spirit working through the church in the woman searching for the one lost coin. And then you have the father uh, 
rejoicing when his child returns and that adoption takes place and that which is lost is now found. So the son suffers, the spirit seeks, and the father uh, rejoices. Uh, You know, another interesting thing here in all three of these parables, and I will get to them, but is simply the concept that here in the entirety of the parables, you have both the concept of God seeking, and you also have, especially in the prodigal son returning, the concept of man uh, returning. You have God initiating, God looking, God moving, but then you also have the involvement of man and his will, his choice, his decision to come back uh, to the home that he abandoned. So just a beautiful little cluster uh, here of parables that we receive uh, from the Lord. You also, of course, notice that the numbers really get smaller and smaller and the percentages get higher and higher as the parables develop. At first, it's one out of a hundred, then it's one out of ten, and then finally, it's one out of two, perhaps indicating the great value system of God that to him, even one lost person is so highly significant in his heart and uh, within his mind. Now, the point really of all of this, you know, because when you have a parable, uh, the idea is that we're, you're not to overly press the finer points and details of the parable, but that there is to be one major theme that comes jumping out at your heart that you connect with and that you latch onto. What would be that major theme that Jesus wanted these Pharisees and scribes to understand through these parables? It seems to be that he would want to show them the attitude of God when a sinner is restored to God. And the attitude that God has is that of joy. The Pharisees and the scribes, they did not understand this. They did not have this as part of their value system. So it says in verse 4, we have the beginning now of the first movement of this parable. We might call it the first parable about the sheep and the shepherd. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus gives us the parable of the shepherd searching after the one lost sheep. And of course, the picture is all that is fairly simple. You have a hundred sheep. One of them is lost. Probably a flock that big would require some assistance. So when the chief shepherd goes and looks for the lost sheep, it's not as if the 99 are just free to wander and roam and then get lost themselves. No, we shouldn't imagine it in that way in our minds. And even if he was shepherding that amount of sheep alone, uh, surely this would have been conducted at the nighttime when the sheep went into the fold, were counted, and at number 99, the shepherd would then entrust the sheep with the servant that would watch the sheepfold, and then he would go out and find uh, that lost 
uh, sheep. So the 99 are not in any danger. The thing that seems to be highlighted here in, in this portion of the parable is that the shepherd goes out and looks. Now, this is an aggressive search. He would go into the hills. He would uh, look high and low. Uh, he would be fairly sacrificial in this process. And of course, when we think about the search of Jesus, what the great shepherd did to, to find sheep for himself, we understand that Jesus experienced great and incredible pain. His pain was a a uh, legitimate pain. His search was a painful search, is what I'm trying to say. There was the pain of just simply becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the pain of his humanity, experiencing that limitation on our behalf. And then, of course, the gruesome pain of the cross. Physically, psychologically, uh, spiritually, Jesus suffered uh, there on the cross. And so his search for lost sheep was a painful search. Now, of course, we see also highlighted the incredible joy, the rejoicing. First of all, the shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders and he himself rejoices. Then he comes home and gathers together friends and neighbors and asks them to rejoice with him. And then the application that Jesus gives, as he says, just so, verse 7, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So uh, the attitude of heaven, the distress of the search is swallowed up by the joy uh, for the shepherd of finding. And we're learning there afresh the attitude of heaven about sinners who return to the Lord. A sinner who repents is more, brings more joy than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now in verse 8, Jesus gives a second illustration or a second move of this one parable. He says, or verse 10, what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Now, some people think actually that it was common for women in those days to put coins in their headband. I don't know that I can comment on that myself, but some people think that that's so. And so you have this woman, she keeps these 10 silver coins for uh, herself, sort of a security for her. She knows that there are 10, not nine, not 11. She loses a coin and she does everything that she can to find it. She sweeps the house, lights a lamp, and seeks diligently to find uh, that lost coin. Now, this seemingly gives us and speaks to us concerning the search of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ for those who are lost. Jesus, of course, told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8, that when the Spirit comes upon us, we would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Second Corinthians 5, verse 18, tells us that God 
has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And verse 19 has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. And so, you know, I think the woman here helps us understand perhaps a little bit our role in searching and seeking diligently, lighting the lamp and sweeping the house and doing everything that we can can to find those uh, who are lost. Now, it is interesting. Lost, or, you know, the word itself, by definition, indicates previous possession. So mankind belonged to God, but was lost to God. Now, again, we have the concept, verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, again, this is highlighting joy, but it's slightly different from what we saw in verse 7, where we read that there was more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Here we get a little bit more clarity about the joy. He says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In other words, it isn't so much, and this is very possible, that this is what Jesus is saying. He says, there's joy before the angels of God. And we, I think, popularly think about this as, uh, well, the angels are joyful. But he says joy before or joy in front of the angels of God. Who is it that is perpetually in front of the angels? Who do the angels surround? They surround God. So perhaps Jesus is meaning that, hey, God himself is rejoicing over sinners who repent and the angels are witnessing that salvation. They're witnessing that joy uh, from God. So all of this joy, though, it comes in heaven over one sinner who repents. Really, in one sense, repentance is at the heart of this parable. John the Baptist preached it, Luke 3, verse 3. Jesus preached it, Luke 5, 32. The church is to preach it, we'll learn in Luke 24, verse 47. And so often people think of the word repentance in negative terms, but if you really think about it, uh, it has the grace of God embedded in it. Just the fact that repentance is possible is God's mercy and grace. Now he said in verse 11, and here we move into the final parable, the third movement of the singular parable, we should say. And he said there was a man who had two sons. So we've gone from one uh, out of a hundred, then one out of ten, and now one out of two. And the younger of them uh, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Uh, So here you have a father with two sons. One of the sons comes and says, I'd like my inheritance early. And the father obliges. This isn't normal, but it was possible in that era. And he gives the son his inheritance even before uh, the father's uh, death. Now, the design of this whole movement of the parable is to contrast the two sons and especially the attitude of the two sons. You remember the context of this whole parable is that the, the Pharisees and the scribes said he receives sinners. 
And here the father is going to receive his son back and rejoice. And the older son or the obedient son is going to uh, have such a difficult time seeing that repentance and that restoration. And Jesus is using this parable to highlight the heart, the attitude, the mind of these religious who could not appreciate uh, Jesus being with the tax collector and the sinner. Now, here's what happened to the younger son uh, when he received his inheritance early. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Everybody there would have understood as Jesus told this parable, they would have compared in their mind's eye the younger son and his reckless living with the tax collectors and the sinners. And when, verse 14, he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So everyone in the country falls under this famine, just as everyone on earth is under the conditions of the curse uh, as a result of the fall of mankind. But these, this character, his pain was made more intense through his reckless living, which is, of course, the same reality of those who live in this kind of way uh, here on earth today. Everybody's under the fall. But the more you sin, the more you transgress, the more painful life becomes. And when he had spent everything, he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out, verse 15, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The misery, the aloneness, the pain of sin had caught up with this man. He's eating or wanting to eat the pods that the pigs are eating and no one gives him anything. But when he came to himself, verse 17, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. There was this humility that came into the younger son's heart. He says, you know, I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy to to eat and, and all of that. And this is the attitude that he has in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy. There it is. To be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he in his own mind, there far from home, has a little speech that he begins brewing inside of his mind. And he basically thinks to himself, I'm going to go tell my father, I've sinned before you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Notice that he wasn't going to return to the father with an audacious kind of pride or a presumptive pride. Uh, He was going to humbly come back to the Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The attitude that says, well, God must receive us and God must accept us just the way we are uh, without any repentance whatsoever. That is the spiritual pride that keeps people from God. But this uh, young man demonstrated a humility. I am no longer worthy, he said. And he arose, verse 20, and came to his father, but 
While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. So you notice there, of course, that the father seems to be looking to the horizon, hoping to be reunited with his son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion, it says. There was no sense of revenge, no anger, no animosity, no who is this young man thinking that he can return uh, after spending all of his inheritance. No, there was compassion within his heart and he ran and embraced and kissed him. This is all amazing in its detail and all amazing because a man in that culture would not behave this way. An older man would not run to his son. He would walk. There would be not this lowering of the self, but this father runs to his son, embraces him, affectionately kisses him. And the son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he had his speech prepared, but before he could finish it, the father said to his servants, verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So major grace there for uh, this prodigal. And of course, the banquet is an image that Jesus has used. And that's what the father does. He throws this great feast, this great banquet. In fact, just in chapter 14, Jesus talked about the banquet of God. And here is a picture that sinners were getting the getting into the banquet of God, the kingdom of God, because they were coming to God. And so grace for this prodigal as he returns. And the major focus, of course, is the grand celebration that unfolds at the return of this son. The, the shocking thing to the Pharisees and the scribes would be that God would rejoice to see a sinner return to the Lord. The son and the shepherd both returned home, uh, returned home and rejoiced. The woman found the coin and rejoiced. And the father calls the servants and rejoiced. So what you're seeing here, of course, is the value system of heaven. God is looking at human beings and saying, human beings are what is valuable to me. I'm concerned about people. I love people. I'm focused on people. And here I think so often in our world and in our time, don't, it, don't we so often lose this focus? Isn't it easy for us to set our mind and our heart, our affection upon other things. It's so easy. So many times even good things. But God is thinking about, God has a priority for people. He loves human beings and he wants to reach those who are lost. The price that he paid was the blood of his own son. First Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ. Now, the parable really isn't over. We've seen the attitude of God, but now it needs to be contrasted with the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
So, verse 25, Jesus tells the portion of the story concerning the older son. Now his older son, verse 25, was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, verse 28, was angry. He was angry. Mercy from the Father. And then beyond that, grace from the Father. You see, the Father could have brought judgment upon the Son. When he withheld judgment, that was mercy. But he could have just withheld judgment and and said, yeah, you do have to act as one of my servants. That would have been mercy. Uh, But he went above and beyond and threw a party for this returned son. That was grace. That was grace. And so he's angry at mercy. He's angry at grace and refused to go in. His father, verse 28, came out and entreated him. You know, this is so interesting, this portion of the story. It's not that the father just said, well, forget it. If my older son doesn't want to come in, I'm not going to go out to him. This might help us understand the heart of Jesus concerning the Pharisees, that he loved the Pharisees just like he loved the tax collectors and the sinners. He wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to know the Lord. He wanted to reason with them, thus this whole parable. But he answered his father, verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he doesn't even want to call him his brother, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. So he gets very real at this point. He says, you killed the fatted, fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, a couple of things to point out as we close out our study of Luke chapter 15. First of all, notice the father's word to the older son. You are always with me and all that is mine is yours. The truthful reality is that the older son really, truly had lived the better life. Uh, He thought that he was seeing reward for a prodigal life being dispensed upon this prodigal son who has returned. But what he was seeing was not reward. He was seeing love. He was seeing grace. He was seeing mercy. What he didn't understand is that his whole life living with the father, living in the father's home, being with the father, all that the father had being his, he didn't understand that that was a rewarding life, living in his father's presence. The other thing I think that is good to point out, and of course, all I mean by that in verse 31, all that is mine and is yours is, hey, it behooves us not to go out and live the prodigal life. It's a blessing to just walk with God, to just enjoy God. All that he has is ours in that state. But here we have verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. 
In verse 7, we saw that there was more joy in heaven. In verse 10, we saw there was joy before the angels of God. And here, there is great gladness and celebration. And I want to leave you with this simple thought. It seems to me that here you have three ingredients to astounding joy found in this chapter. Number one, you have to have a God who seeks out man, and we do. Number two, you have to have a sinner who repents of sin. And then, number three, there seems to be a need for there to be a community who longs to see both. The shepherd came back and told his friends, Rejoice! There was great joy before the angels of God in heaven. And here, when the prodigal returns, there is a great celebration in the house. And my theory is that when you have a God who seeks, which we do, and then you cultivate a community that values the people coming back to the Lord, coming to Christ, then what you'll end up with is repentance from sinners. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at namecoldridge.com.